Good evening. It's a delight to be with you again this Lord's Day evening. Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 2. We're going to return for this week and next week to these letters of Paul by way of an overview and a reminder about the Thessalonian church and their life together is what we are going to consider at least this week as we look at 1 Thessalonians is the testimony of a church. Now, when I was growing up in our church, it was a common sight that, we would, that I would witness, that I would see, that new members or new believers upon being baptized would give a testimony in front of the entire congregation. And I know that public speaking is a fearful thing for many, but it was something that we did and a tradition that we kept because it was an opportunity for those people who were joining the church as members and had been believers for some time or those who were joining the church as new believers and being baptized to also add words to profess their faith and to testify concerning what the Lord has done. And I suppose that many of you have seen that kind of thing in local church congregations and many of you have shared your own testimony as well concerning God's grace. It's a familiar picture when individual Christians testify to God's work in their lives. But churches also have a, an identity, and churches also have a testimony to what God has done in their life. We as a church have a testimony to how God has worked in our lives, and many of you, and some of you even, who have been here from the very beginning of this local congregation can share testimony of what God has been doing over the course of decades. Others have been in the church for a number of years and can testify to what God has done since you've come. And I, like one of the last of all, can testify to at least what God has done in the last year and a half or so in our life together. We have a testimony as a church, and so do all churches. And that's one of the things that we see in Thessalonians as we remind ourselves of their story and consider what went on in the history of the Thessalonian churches, that they had a testimony that, on the one hand, is common to all churches, and on the other hand, is quite unique to their own experience. Their testimony, and I suggest this is what's common for all churches that seek to be faithful to the Lord, their testimony was in the, their reception of the Word of God. And so it is and will be with us. Our testimony to the world concerning God's work will be a testimony that we bear as we demonstrate that we receive God's Word as God's Word, not only in our minds, and our hearts, but also in our actions and our deeds. In that way, we testify that it is God's word, and it is God who is at work in us. And we bear witness to his grace. So if you found your place in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, look with me at verse 13, and let's read these verses again. Verse 13 through verse 16. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles, that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins 
but wrath has come upon them at last. Father in heaven, as we look at your word and we uh, remind ourselves of what you did so many years ago in the church of the Thessalonians, we pray that you would work in our minds and our hearts to give us understanding, to make us receptive to your word, to make us people that like them and uh, following their example, receive your word as your word, not merely as the word of men. And we pray, O Lord, that you would cause your word to work in our lives, that we might grow in faith, that we might abound in love, and that we might hold fast with steadfast hope as we wait for your Son, whom you will again send from heaven to restore all things. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we think about the testimony of a church and we consider the testimony of our church, We should step back for a moment and talk about what a testimony is. Testimony is more than a story of what has happened in our life together or for an individual. It's more than a story of what has happened in his life. It is an account that serves as a proof, in this case, that God is at work in us and that we have believed in him. You can think of this word in a legal context. If someone takes the witness stand and bears witness... He is giving testimony. He is testifying to what he has seen or heard or what, as an expert, he might know so that that testimony can serve as proof entered into the record and the proceedings of the court to prove that something is or is not true, that the defendant is or is not guilty, and so on and so forth. That is what a testimony is. We can look at the Thessalonians' story and see that their story is a testimony. First, let's look at their story and just simply remind ourselves of the big picture of what had happened. We can read about this in Acts 17, and we'll later turn back to Acts 17 and consider some of the particulars. But Paul and Silas and Timothy together on, Paul, on their second missionary journey came into Thessalonica, and they first go into the synagogues, as you recall from Acts 17, and across three successive Sabbath days, they reasoned with the Jews in Thessalonica seeking to persuade them of two basic truths, that Jesus is the Messiah and that it was necessary for him to suffer, to die, and to rise. And we can say that that really is the foundation, the fundamental truths that undergird the gospel proclamation. And across those three Sabbath days, they persuaded some, not all, but some of those Jews in Thessalonica, and they also persuaded many of the Gentiles in Thessalonica to Believe this gospel proclamation. Those individuals who received that message received that testimony as the word of God. And so they believed in Christ. And in believing in Christ, particularly with respect to the Gentiles, they turned from idolatry. We wouldn't expect those Jews in the synagogue to be idolaters. But the Gentiles there in pagan Thessalonica would have been idolaters. They would have gone to the temples of of various Greek gods, and they would have sacrificed to them, they would have uh, worshipped the emperor, they would have practiced paganism, and they didn't continue in that life. They didn't simply adopt Christianity and incorporate it into their faith, but they turned from worshipping idols as they believed this gospel proclamation that Paul came preaching. And that brought hardship in their lives. We recall how uh, the the, uh, Jews in the synagogue who rejected this message were not content to simply reject it, but they stirred up opposition and they caused a riot. They caused unrest in the city and then they accused Paul and they accused those who 
we're giving, um, uh, we're aiding Paul and we're uh, giving him a place to stay. And uh, one particular individual named Jason even had to put up a security. Um, it had, for, had to forfeit some of his money in, in, in uh, order to pacify the leaders of the, of, of the government there in Thessalonica. They endured various hardships and they continued to endure persecution. In the text we read, Paul speaks about how they became imitators of the uh, churches in Judea because they suffered the same things from their countrymen in Thessalonica as the Jewish Christians in Judea suffered from their countrymen in Judea. They suffered persecution and opposition. And Paul lists the ways in which that, that is sort of the, was the, the common theme in the life of the Judean churches, going all the way back to even before the churches, to the experience of Christ and the prophets who were driven out, who were despised by the people of Israel so often. And so too, that became the common experience of the church in Thessalonica. They became imitators of those churches because they endured hardship and continued in the faith. But through it all, they continued to grow in their faith. They continued to uh, work out their faith with love towards others. And Paul writes about this in 1 Thessalonians 1. You remember what he says at the very beginning in verse 2 of chapter 1. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of life, love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, that would serve as the testimony that we've been talking about, the proof to Paul that God really was at work in the life of the Thessalonians. For Paul goes on in verse 4 of that first chapter to say, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. How did Paul know? How did Paul, Silas, and Timothy know that they had been chosen? Why? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. It's the same idea that we see him come back to then in verse 13 of chapter 2. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it is, what it really is, the word of God. And so as we think about that story, we realize that it actually is a testimony, not just a story. And it has elements that are common to the testimony of all churches. We see that element of repentance. We see the fact that they turned from something to faith in Christ, believing that gospel proclamation of the lordship of Christ, of salvation in his name, of the necessity of his death for our sins and his resurrection from the grave. They believed that message. And as they believed that and embraced a life following Christ, they lived out their faith. They worked out their faith in love for one another. They increased in love and they endured intense persecution, holding fast their hope in Christ and waiting for that day when he will come from heaven again to restore all things. That was the character of their faith and that's the character of the faith of every church but we can also see then the unique elements of their testimony. What they turned from was idolatry. And we may turn from something different. That is actual pagan idolatry. They turned to Christ as everyone do, every Christian does. They turned uh, 
in, in living a life of not love for self, but love for one another, as all Christians do. And then they endured intense persecution, which is not necessarily the lot of every Christian church, not necessarily part of every church's testimony, though some form of opposition is to be expected. And then in their context, geographically and historically, we see that that testimony then was heard throughout their region in Macedonia, in Achaia, and beyond, so that churches like the church in Corinth and the church at Philippi and the church at Berea and so on knew of what God had done among the Thessalonians. And Paul can write about this if you go back to verse 8 of chapter 1, for not, uh, excuse me, go back to verse 7, verse 6 and 7. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. You see that idea of testimony in their example. And he goes on to describe that testimony. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. You start to see how this story actually served as a testimony. It served as a testimony in their region. It served as a testimony even beyond their region. As people heard the reports, as people saw the evidence of their newfound faith, it was proof that God's word was at work in their lives. It was proof of God's grace to the Thessalonians. It was proof that they really had been chosen by God, as Paul declared. I want to look more closely at this particular testimony and think specifically on this idea of receiving the word of God as the word of God. To think about what that means, looking at it in the context of the Thessalonian Christians and their life, but also looking at it in the context of our life and simply thinking about that together. What will it look like if we are to be a church that has this same testimony that people will say about Coloma Bible Church, they receive the word of God as the word of God, not the word of men. Look at verse 13 again. Paul says, we also thank God constantly for this. And in those words, Paul acknowledges that essential to their reception of the word of God is God's work himself. It's, it, it doesn't invalidate the reality of their faith. It doesn't invalidate the necessity of calling people to believe the gospel and to repent of their sins. We really do that. We are called to do that. But necessarily, God is the one who first works. He is the first mover. He causes us to be born again. And in that new birth, in that work of regeneration whereby God works in us, we are suddenly changed from people who stand at enmity with God and in opposition to the gospel. We are changed to people who receive God's word in faith. We really do receive it in faith. We're not just puppets on a string, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an action of mind and, and, and of heart and, and of, of our life where we're turning from one thing to another. But God is the first mover. God is the one who first works in our lives. That's why it's appropriate for Paul to say, we also thank God constantly for this. Rather than to say, we praise you for this because you're so smart or you're so astute or you're, you're so well studied or you've, you've worked so hard to understand the message that we proclaimed. He begins with 
gratitude to God for what he's done in their lives. But he does acknowledge that they have done something. You received the word of God. And when you received the word of God, here Paul makes mention of the fact that he was an instrument, he and the others with him, were instruments by which the word was delivered to them, saying, which you heard from us, he does not declare that it was his word at all. He minimizes his role in the whole affair. He's simply an instrument. He's nothing more than the mouthpiece by which God delivered this word to them. It is God's word, and they received it as God's word, not as the word of man, even though Paul and his uh, co-workers were the instruments through which that word was heard. And that's what the word really is. It is the word of God. And the way you can see that it's the word of God is because it is at work in the way they could, they could see was that it was in work in the Thessalonian believers. This is what happened in their life. And he gives examples of how they did that. Someone in Thessalonica might read this and say, well, what do you mean? What, what are you talking about, Paul? And he gives examples in verse 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Paul did not simply come in and walk into the synagogue one day and say, Jesus is the Christ, he had to suffer and die and rise and walk out. There's a good summary, good uh, subtitles for the sermon, but there's a lot more that's involved in what Paul would have preached. And one of those things that he would have preached is that suffering and difficulty and trials and opposition are sure to come. But Christ is also sure to come to bring an end to those things. And so he would have called upon them to wait for Christ to return. And they listened to that. He would have called upon them to endure with steadfastness the hostilities that would come. As Paul was forced to leave Thessalonica, he would have encouraged them and challenged them to hold fast to their faith. And he would, pray, would have prayed to that end, that God would sustain them through it. And they did that. They became imitators of those churches of God and Christ Jesus. That is, those churches that persevered and remained steadfast in the midst of these trials and these persecutions. That's what it looked like in the Thessalonians' life to receive the word of God. To say, yes, we really believe this. We really believe Christ will return again. We really are committed to wait for him to come back from heaven. And so they did. And they suffered loss. And they suffered hardship. Some perhaps even lost their lives. Paul also speaks of the fact that in receiving the word of God, they, um, that, that the word was what was at work in them. And what, I, you, know, what you see here is the idea that it's God who is working, but the way in which he was working is through his word, received in their minds, in their hearts, and bearing fruit as they received it and they understood it and they believed it. There were actions that followed in their lives. Those actions which Paul summarizes and describes with the language of, of faith and love and hope that we read back at the very beginning of 1 Thessalonians. Remembering your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope. These uh, virtues that Paul extols so frequently in his letters to the churches. These were characteristic of the Thessalonians' life, and they were proof that God's word was at work in their lives. And all of this shows that it really is God's word. So you think about God's word as what differentiates it from man's word is that God's word is true always in every way. God's word is authoritative 
always in every way. And God's word is powerful, always and every way. Let there be light. Well, it's already there. Nothing changed. I can't speak light into existence. Neither can any of you. I had a professor once who was at, uh, he was teaching a Bible class at uh, a prison, doing a prison ministry, and the, the power went out briefly, and he just banged to the desk and said, let there be light, and the power came back on, and he won a lot of credibility with those inmates that day, but it, was, uh, it wasn't real, <laughs> of course, but uh, um, yeah, we can't do that, but God can. His word is powerful. His word works in our lives. His word is authoritative. When he commands, we best obey. If we don't, we're in rebellion to him. If I tell you to do something like go down the street and get me a shamrock shake from McDonald's, you have no obligation to do what I just told you to do. My word's not authoritative like that. But if God commands us to repent of our sins, to believe the gospel, to embrace his son Jesus Christ as Lord, to believe in him with faith for the forgiveness of our sins, that we might be forgiven and justified by his righteousness, we best obey. We best submit to his authority, for he speaks as the one who is Lord of heaven and earth. And we can trust that all his words are true. We go back through the Old Testament and we think about the ways in which God has proven again and again his word to be true. And then those things serve as testimonies that all that God says will prove true. You think of Joshua and how Joshua, near the end of his life, could stand before the people of Israel and he could tell them, everything that God promised you has come to pass. Every single thing. You're in the land. You possess the land. God has, uh, has uh, apportioned the land just as he had promised to, the, to, to, to each tribe and he has established you in the land and he has, through your hands, driven out the peoples of the land. And then Joshua could say, God also spoke that if you disregard his covenant and you turn from him, there are curses in that covenant that will come upon you. And know that if the blessings he promised came to you, surely those curses will come upon you. And that is exactly what played out in Israel's history as they turned from God and rejected his covenant. The word of the Lord proves true as we read in Psalm 18. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. Every word of God proved true, or as it's said in Joshua at the end, there were no falling words. Not one of God's promises failed. That's what's unique about God's word compared to our word. It's always true in every way. It's authoritative in our lives. And so we best honor it and obey it and submit to it and believe it. And it's powerful in its working if we receive it. And it was in the Thessalonians. It was powerful in their lives to produce that kind of sanctification that God has promised to work by degrees in his people. Last, when we think about the Thessalonians, as I've just alluded to and suggested, we need to re realize that the reception of God's word as the word of God is not seen merely in mental belief. But there are deeds that accompany it. Actions that demonstrate that we truly believe God's word. As we've seen with them, it was their demonstration of their faith in love toward one another and in steadfast hope. That is what served as proof to Paul that God had chosen them, that 
they had received the word with full conviction, that they were persevering in this faith that they had received. That's the testimony of the Thessalonians. How was it a testimony? Because it resounded in many places to encourage the faith of other Christians, to give other churches an example of what a church looks like when it receives God's word as the word of God. I know that it's not been long since we went through these letters, and so I hope that at least in some sense this is familiar. These narratives are familiar. But I want to step back as we think about what happened in the Thessalonian church and think about our life together. What will we look like as a church? What will our testimony be? How can we have the same testimony that the Thessalonians had? Not in the particulars of uh, facing the kind of persecution they faced or turning from idolatry as they turned from it, but rather in those, that general sense as people of whom later generations will say they received God's word as God's word. What do we do when the word convicts us? Do we resist it? Do we silence it? Or do we respond with repentance and change? This is a really hard thing to do in a corporate setting. It's always hard, even in an individual setting. But if I'm personally convicted by the word of God, I can repent and I can turn. But if as a church we're called to do something in scripture, and yet we're not all united in our conviction to turn and to change and to pursue something, it's going to be really difficult to make that change. Think in terms of, of, of the history of the Protestant Reformation. What happened to, at the outset of the Protestant Reformation? Well, a monk named Martin Luther was reading the letter to the Romans. And this man was, was, uh, was always bearing a weight of guilt, felt like he could never confess his sins fast enough to overcome his sinful heart. And he, 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 uh, he felt like he could never be good enough to earn favor before the Lord. He came to realize that he was right. But that wasn't the way to try to be right with the Lord. As he read Romans, he realized that true righteousness, the only righteousness that can credit us before God, is not a righteousness that comes from within, but one that is assigned to us from without. It's received by faith. And so he began to preach differently, to teach differently, to try to bring about a reformation within the church. And what did it actually produce? Division, dissension. The church rejected not everyone wanted to go along with him. And by God's grace, he was a man of great conviction with, with uh, great courage and was able to lead many to embrace that project of reform and plant many churches. And that Reformation project continued and, and continued on and on and continues to this day. But not everyone was along with it. And it created a lot of difficulty. And many people would rather simply go back to seeking peace at the cost of embracing God's word. You see how hard it can be to hear God's word and to repent when it convicts us in that corporate setting. The Reformation is that great, a great example of that. What do we do when God's word is distasteful? Do we seek to modify it? Do we ignore it? Or do we try to acquire a taste for it, so to speak? Do we learn to love it? Do we meditate on it and pray that the Lord would open our eyes to the goodness and the, and the wonders of his word, even those things that initially we just don't like? I think back to Paul again and how he spoke to the Thessalonians in verse 13, and he said, when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, 
And I consider how from the very beginning of the church up to this day, people still love to question whether Paul is a credible witness, whether the words that he wrote that we have here in this book should actually be considered scripture. It's a, it's a common thing in our day for people to try and pit Paul against Jesus. I've, I've seen videos recently to this effect where people who uh, bear the title of pastor will talk about how Paul might have said this one thing, but he was, uh, and they, 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 they discredit him in a, in a variety of ways and create a picture that, that Jesus somehow says something quite different and they're actually against each other. And I would say that I don't think those people spend a lot of time actually reading the Gospels and considering what Jesus said and did in detail. But there is an effort to discredit Paul when some of the things that he teaches or preaches are not, uh, they're not to our liking. That happened in Paul's own day, and it happens right up to our own day. But I want you to listen to what, turn with me actually to 2 Peter 3, what Peter had to say about Paul. One of the ways that people will characterize Paul and discredit him is they'll not just pit him against Jesus, but also against Jesus' closest disciples. You mentioned Peter. You mentioned uh, James, for instance. And they'll say, well, Paul didn't like Peter, and Paul didn't like James, and they didn't, they didn't like each other. And you, well, look to Galatians where Paul rebukes Peter. But tell me if what Peter writes very near the end of his life reflects him not liking Paul, and not appreciating Paul and his contributions. This is in 2 Peter 3, verses 14 and following. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, talking about the, the fulfillment of God's purposes in the last days, he says, since you're waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. As he does in all his letters, when he speaks of him, them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. Listen to this. As they do the other scriptures. Paul counted, actually Peter counted Paul as a beloved brother. Peter counted Paul as one who had been endowed with extraordinary wisdom by the Lord. Peter counted Paul as one who wrote consistently in all his letters, consistent with what Peter himself was teaching in this letter that he wrote at the end of his life. Peter counted Paul as one through whom God gave us Scripture, classifying his letters along with the other Scriptures. And if people distort those, that's not Paul's fault. That's what the ignorant and unstable do with all the scriptures, Peter says. But Peter considered Paul a beloved brother through whom God was pleased to speak his word. Not as if Paul were anything or Peter were anything, but because God in his grace chose to use them as instruments to deliver his word to his people. Paul does say things that are hard to understand. And they're hard to apply in our context. And some of them, frankly, we just don't like in our culture. When Paul, for example, gives instructions that elders are to be men and that he doesn't permit women to have a particular role of, of, of uh, exercising authority through teaching and preaching, what do you think our culture says about that in a day when we've 
were on the other side of, of uh, fe the feminist and suffrage movements. Certainly doesn't like it. When Paul speaks about the importance of uh, relationships between husbands and wives and men and women and how uh, marriage ought to be uh, uh, a sanctified relationship between a man and a woman in our culture. What do you think our culture thinks about that? Do they like Paul? Do they preach the things that Paul wrote in those churches that, that affirm that which God does not affirm in his word? Certainly not. They don't receive it as the word of God. They receive it as the word of men. It's a common thing in our day. It was a common thing in Paul's day. We ought not to be like that. What do we do when God's word is distasteful? What do we do when God's word convicts us? Do we receive it as God's word? Or do we say, well, let me cut that little bit out. Let me find a way to discredit the human author so I can say that's not really scripture. It's not really from God, and I'm not obligated to submit to it, to believe it, to obey it. That's really the testimony, a negative testimony, of so many of the mainline churches in our culture. I have had the privilege to sit with one of our uh, fellow local pastor who's in a denomination um, that is going um, in a far different direction in terms of its, its um, rejection of God's word. And uh, I've had the, he, he himself is committed to preaching and teaching the word of God as the word of God, all the scriptures as the word of God. Thank the Lord. But as I've sat with him, he shared some of the challenges he's faced. And one thing that he shared with me is that when he preaches on the new birth, when he proclaims that you must be born again, he has people come up to him and say, don't preach on that anymore. Said, Why? It's in the scriptures. I know it's in the scriptures. I don't like it. I don't want to hear it. They're not even denying that that's what Scripture says. They just don't like it. They don't want to hear it. Preach to us what we want to hear. Isn't that what Paul said to Timothy? In the last days, what will do people do? They will accumulate teachers who itch their ears, who speak to their passions. But what does he say to Timothy? You, O oh man of God, preach the word in season and out of season. We live in a culture that doesn't like God's word. And that's something that affects us too. Some parts of it we like, some parts we don't like. Is that a good reason to say I don't, I don't accept it, I won't obey it, I won't believe it? Certainly not. We need to acquire a taste if we have that problem for what God says. For all that he says is good, and all that he says is true, all that he says is for our upbuilding and for our strengthening. And it is... For our good, we should believe it, we should obey it. What do we do when God's word brings about suffering or reviling? Do we hide from it? Do we reject it? Do we run from it? That's a problem that the Thessalonians really faced. We don't experience it uh, quite so much, quite so strongly in our day. But we may, a day may come when we may face arrest, face the loss of a job, face public scrutiny for our embrace of God's word. What will we do in that day? Will we believe that God's word proves true in everything so that though the opposition and the trials come in accordance with God's word, so also will his salvation come and his vindication come in accordance with God's word? Will we hold it fast? Will we continue to believe it through thick and thin? Or will we hide from it? 
We say, I, I'd rather embrace the cares and concerns of the world. These are the questions that come to us as we think about what it means in our context to receive the word of God as the word of God. And if we don't resolve to always receive God's word as authoritative in our, in our lives, to believe it's true in every way, and to pray that God through his word would work powerfully in our lives, then I have one other question. What will we do when Christ comes again and God's word proves true in all things? We will regretfully wish we had believed and embraced God's word in its fullness on that day. So as we think about that last thought, and as we resolve to be like the Thessalonians, to, as Paul says in chapter 1, verse 10, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come, we can ask how will we hold fast to God's word as a church? Three simple ways. We'll hold fast by submitting to it as the word of God, not the word of men. We'll hold fast by prioritizing it in our worship, in our regular gatherings. We do these things already. Our worship features the preaching of the word. Even in our singing, what are we doing but recalling scriptural themes and biblical truth in the hymns that we select and the hymns that we sing? We prioritize God's word. So we say, well, we've got these things settled already. We're doing that. But one of the things about church, what the church history has shown, especially in the last Oh, hundred or so years is that it only takes a generation for a church to lose its commitment to the Word of God. I read an article earlier about a Presbyterian uh, pastor down south who recently was engaging in some research to understand the history of his church and other churches in that were, they were in cooperation with. Churches that were quite famous and were led by, by uh, wonderful conservative preachers of God's Word in the early 20th century. And as he went to find out what had happened to those churches, he didn't find that they had abandoned the gospel. He found that churches did not even exist anymore. Churches that were once vibrant, churches that were filled with people that were worshiping God and proclaiming the gospel in a generation had ceased to believe, had ceased to embrace God's word as God's word, had ceased to even exist as churches. Why? Because new leaders came in and ceased to prioritize the word of God as the word of God. So instead of preaching from God's word, might have a thoughtful discussion about an article in the newspaper. Or a book that was taken off the self-help rack at the bookstore. Or anything that might be on the preacher's mind. Anything but God's word. Why would people spend their Sundays anymore going to a place like that? Let us resolve as a church not to go that way, but to always in our lives together, submit to God's word together and prioritize it in our worship and we can say in our lives individually, in our homes, and what we do. And finally, let us hold it fast by loving God's word together and by living it out in our lives so that we love one another. As we seek to put that these things into practice as we seek to love one another, as we seek to encourage one another to hold fast in hope from the word of God, not simply with platitudes or, or encouraging words that we come up with, but with reminders of what God's word gives us to encourage us, encourage us to love and to hold steadfast in our faith and our hope in the coming of Christ. Let us hold it fast together and resolve to do so by loving it together.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word is sufficient for our life and our faith and our godliness. My words are not enough and could never do the trick. But your word is enough. Lord, I pray that I would simply be seen as a means and an instrument in your hands, and nothing more, but that your word would be seen and embraced and loved in this place for many years to come as the instrument, the true and, and powerful instrument that you use to work in our lives to produce the godliness that you would seek from us, to produce the faith that endures faithful to the end so that we might be a church that indeed has this testimony that we receive your word as your word and so that others in future generations or in the present generation might look and say there is a church that is an example to us an example to us of what it means to receive God's word as his word, to embrace it, to love it, to pursue it with faith. May we always and forever be that kind of church. We pray this in Jesus' name.